uh, kama wanavyosema kuishi kwingi ndo kuona mengi sasa mi leo niko hapa katika jumba la uh, grox.net tukiongea juu ya maisha ya maisha ya shule hapa I'm Frank Ling, and this is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, Mentos, Wheat, and Grape Juice. And also joining us is Carl Greenfield, who will talk about the SARS epidemic. In addition, you can find out if shark fins cure cancer. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grox Round 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. Coming right up here on Berkeley Grox. Back to Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Lee. Yeah, and I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? I think I just satisfied my sweet tooth. Candy? Uh, Mentos. It is the fresh maker. <laughs> yes. You think Berkeley Rocks is the Mentos of science? I think it's more the diuretic of science. <laughs> we know how to expel the right stuff, huh? Uh, well, we're just help passing on knowledge in a very fluid way, is I guess what I'm trying oh, to imply. <laughs> As they said in Monty Python's, uh, it's like a stream of bat's piss. It <laughs> shines out like a shaft of gold when all else around is dark. Liquid gold. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> So it uh, turns out Mentos can enhance your soda drinking uh, experience. My soda drinking experience. All yes, right. that uh, is if you like it fizzy and out of control, actually. All right, well, the soda's already highly fizzy. It has, like, dissolved bicarbonate in the Mentos? No, actually, so the gum arabic in Mentos, apparently that breaks the surface tension of the water, so it accelerates the CO2 escaping okay. from the uh, solution. And in fact, as it's releasing CO2, it forms more nucleation sites where more CO2 comes out, so you get a chain reaction of fizzing. I see, so it provides some sort of surface catalyst to allow bicarbonate to. Right. That's fascinating. You know what also works is shaking the can really hard. And, and the reason why these people have been playing around with this because there's an urban legend that says that if you eat pop rocks and drink carbonated beverages at the same time, your stomach would explode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the kids have tried that on animals for like years and uh-huh. to the uh, chagrin of the animals. <laughs> But Mentos would uh, give your stomach quite a burp if you uh, had both of this. But it is still the fresh maker. So if anyone wants to get fresh, they should go to www.stevespanglerscience.com. He's actually a uh, director of the National Hands-On Science Institute in Denver, and he actually demonstrated this on TV quite recently. All right, so do you enjoy your breads and cookies and pastas? Of course, with soda and bacon and the 64-ounce prime rib. Well, you got a good diet. Which, what diet's that? Eat when you're alive. <laughs> the eat while you're alive diet. That... And, uh, of course, I start with dessert first. Perfect. <laughs> well, I've actually heard that that's been recommended since if you eat dessert first, you won't eat as much of uh, the actual main course. Mm-hmm. It's also my philosophy in life, you know. <laughs> you never know when it might all end. I'm surprised the show hasn't ended yet, but yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, so it turns out that researchers who are interested in these wheats, because they have a high glycemic index, mm-hmm. they send the sugars very rapidly into your bloodstream, causing insulin spikes and all kinds of bad things. Isn't there a consensus among contemporary dietitians that breads and a lot of wheat products is actually uh, not good for you, not just for the skin, and but just your overall health? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's all even reflected in the new food pyramid, which shows that you should use these things sparingly. Right. <laughs> so researchers now are trying to change that because wheat, it turns out, has two different types of molecules, amylopectin and amylose. Mm-hmm. So amylopectin is actually the bad molecule because it's very easily digested, remains very highly soluble, I see. and can be transferred into your bloodstream, whereas amylose kind of clumps together and cannot be easily digested. So obviously, if you can increase the concentration of amylose in the wheat, you have a better wheat. Right. And that's exactly what some researchers have done at the Cicero plant in, in Canberra, Australia, led by Matthew Morell. They've taken two genes, SBE2A and SBE2B, altered those a little bit, and increased the amount of the amylose, which is the one that's not easily digested, mm-hmm. uh, to 75%. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, they tested this in rats, shown that they seem to be healthier, and they want to test this in pigs. And they've tried making some breads and stuff uh, with it, and it seems as if it's a pretty good flour to work with, they say. So uh, these scientists are stealthily improving the diets of the population, huh? <laughs> Better living through science. I always knew science one day would help. Now, if it can only help me get a date. <laughs> so this is actually very fascinating. Uh, but researchers say that even if they do happen to perfect this particular wheat, it's going to take some doing with the wheat industry and the bakers and the bread makers because they don't want to make people me- messing with their perfect food. So <laughs> it's work that was actually published in our favorite journal, The Proceedings. PNAS? Yes, indeed. The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS. <laughs> So, Charles, do you ever have that methane problem? Leaking in my house? <laughs> Into your house, I guess. <laughs> From uh, various sources? No, not not recently. Uh-huh. Methane, of course, is one of the most potent uh, greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. In fact, I believe it's like a couple of order magnitudes, at least more potent than CO2. Hmm. And people have wondering, you know, whether... Um, animal waste and rotting uh, vegetable matters would contribute to that. And up to this point, it was thought that the processes, the bacterial action that led to this, happened mostly in uh, anaerobic environments. Mm -hmm. But it turns out a recent study carried out by Frank Kepler at the Max Planck Institute shows that a lot of plant species under normal conditions, that is in the air, emit methane uh, in very big quantities and would probably contribute between 10 to 30 percent of the total methane emitted. But but the other 70 percent is still from the anaerobic process they're suggesting. Okay. Right. Same. But even if we were able to cut down that 10 to 30 percent, would it matter or make a big difference in terms of the global uh, warming cycle? It may or may not, but it does explain some of the observations that over large tropical forests, where you think you'd be sucking a lot of CO2 right. and becoming um, more oxygen oxygenated, you're actually seeing huge plumes of methane gas huh. from there. And he thinks that it's possible that the uh, slowdown in the growth rate of methane in recent years could be due to uh, deforestation. Okay. <laughs> so uh, opposite what you would think. Right, but you know, this is not an excuse to uh, start just raising our, our forests for that. No, I think it's uh, we, we need the property to build condos. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, this is an interesting side note. Could be a significant factor in modeling climate change as we figure out what goes into the atmosphere. Mm. And this was in a recent edition of Nature. And finally, one more story about food, grape juice. <laughs> grape juice? You know, I always watch that grape ape character. I'm not sure if grape ape uh, actually drank grape juice. We just one big grape, huh? <laughs> 
the juice coming from the grape ape, I think, would not be as tasty as grape juice. It'll be wine, right? <laughs> well, so it turns out that researchers who are actually interested in the antioxidant potential of wines because of the polyphenols in them hmm. have wondered, actually, if you can get the same benefit from just the grape juice itself. Oh. And it turns out that you possibly can. Uh-huh. Uh, so research led by uh, neuroscientist James Joseph of Tufts University in Boston, Massachusetts, has uh, shown with specific types of grape juice that, in fact, you can actually have enhancements similar to uh, what you might find with drinking wine. But the researchers have just basically fed this to some old rats, uh, some grape juice to old rats, mm-hmm. to see how they fared, and they do well on a, a number of behavioral tests. You mean like the SAT? <laughs> uh, that's that's more just sort of the... Um, the mighty the, mouse? Yeah, well, I guess it's sort of the weed-out test is what oh, that is. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, tests such as, uh, you know, balancing and stamina and strength, these type of things, uh-huh. which I think has yet to actually been implemented in the SAT. Uh, but uh, these rats do much better than rats fed, fed placebo diets. And uh, they also seem to show um, improvements in their ability to learn maze tasks. You know, the common things that people do to, to right. rats, yeah. Um, so, so there's still a chance for us to live forever. And, and run mazes better, I guess, as well, <laughs> is the, is the uh, long shot. <laughs> Um, but anyway, very fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of Nutrition. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grok listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Carl Greenfeld joins us to talk about the SARS epidemic. So stay tuned. back to Berkeley Grocks. While health experts agree a flu pandemic is not a question of if, but when, as the H5N1 virus mutates, it is likely that it will become spreadable between humans one day. While the SARS outbreak of 2003 may be in the backburners of our minds, there are many important lessons to be learned from this episode. Well, joining us today is Mr. Carl Taro Greenfield, author and former Times Asia editor, who will tell us about his experience during that time. He's the author of China Syndrome, the 21st century's first great epidemic. Mr. Granfield, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you. So first of all, could you tell us uh, the premise behind this book you've written? In, uh, I, was, I was living in Hong Kong from 2000 until 2004. I was the editor of a magazine called Time Asia, which is very similar to the U.S. edition of Time only it's you know obviously covers covers Asia. It's a sister publication of the U.S. edition of Time. Mm-hmm. So I was running that, and in uh, sort of late in 2002, we began hearing uh, sort of weird stories about there being like a run on vinegar in markets in southern China, and people were boiling charcoal pellets in the hope of purifying the air because there was uh, alleged to be a uh, deadly respiratory disease, you know, burning through Guangdong. Now initially, I, I uh, 
dismissed those rumors, thinking it was just sort of that week's, you know, exotic Asian story, the equivalent of you know, Japanese schoolgirls selling their underwear or, or uh, a witch in Jakarta being beheaded or something. But, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, much to... Um, to the world's alarm, it turned out that those were the very first reports of what would become known as severe acute respiratory syndrome, which was the uh, the first virus to jump the species barrier and achieve you know widespread human to human transmission since uh, HIV 25 years earlier. So, of course, your your book here, uh, the main title is China Syndrome. Do you discuss perhaps China's perspective and how they handled the situation? Yeah, I mean, the, the book has many parts. I mean, the book is, for one, it's a, it's a you know blow-by-blow blow recounting of the outbreak, very much like the hot zone or something, only this is set in China. And, and it, it gives you the epidemiological, the, the clinical, and the, you know, the, the, the microbiological response to the outbreak. Okay, the SARS was, was really, a, a, if, you, if you sort of look at it in real time, it's the first time this has been done, where you have a real-time recounting of a disease outbreak. This is 100 days. Mm-hmm in uh, late 2002, early 2003, in which we went from never having heard of this disease to it being all over the world and infecting, you know, thousands and thousands. The Chinese government initially played a somewhat disgraceful role in actually denying the existence of, of the disease. It, be, it not being politically expedient in early 2003 for several reasons, foremost of which, on March 15th, the National People's Congress was meeting, and uh, leadership of the uh, the chairmanship of the, of the of the Communist Party is going to be handed from Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao. Um, it wouldn't look very much like a mandate of heaven for this new leader if, at the same time, there's found to be a you know deadly new infectious disease afoot, sort of burning through the country. This this was one of the reasons, at the highest levels, why the um, the news was downplayed. At the local levels in Guangdong. Right, which is a province, you know, which is a province directly north of Hong Kong in China. A great deal was known about the disease. Mm-hmm. You know that they they knew, for example, a team went to Huyan, which is a village and, uh, a few hours away from Guangzhou, in uh, uh, late 2002, very late 2002, and compiled a report describing what the disease, what the symptoms were, what the 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 appropriate clinical response might be. That patients who came in in you know with severe respiratory ailments at that point should probably be quarantined, so forth. A whole list of of, of prescriptions which had the world known about that at the time that the Chinese you know medical establishment knew about it thousands and thousands you know would would you know would have been saved so you know the the there's a real human cost to sort of this kind of of policy of secrecy which the Chinese government sometimes deploys and in this case the uh, you know the, the cost was that you know th- that the disease was allowed to get out of China and, and and spread around the world the alarming thing here obviously is that you know we see instances of this you know, in, in governments around the world that the, the response to emerging diseases, emerging infectious diseases, too often is denial. We, mm-hmm. saw, it, uh, we saw it in the U.S. initially with HIV, where even the gay community in San Francisco was uh, uh, claiming that, that doctors and scientists who were, were, were saying this was a new virus were, were sort of, you know, moralizers trying to, to, to uh, put an end to the good time. The Reagan administration initially denied that, that HIV was going to in, in the Middle Ages with, um, with plague in London, you had uh, officials initially denying the existence. There's something about infectious disease outbreaks that governments tend to deny. Right. And there's a real human cost to that. And, and SARS, yet again, we saw it. And in this case, we saw the Chinese government, for political reasons, was, was tempted to deny it. And also keep in mind that the reporting of news about infectious diseases in China is still considered a state secret. So if you do go to the media and say there's an infectious disease outbreak abroad, you can be uh, you know tried, you can be charged, tried, and probably convicted of treason in China. Do you think the WHO did a good job in uh, getting the word out and opening up Chinese government? 
I think the WHO was essential in curtailing the SARS outbreak. I think there's a couple issues here that, that, that you've pointed out. The Global Outbreak and Response Network, which is the very small team within the WHO that is tasked with, with identifying and responding to disease outbreaks around the world, is that's sort of an elaborate name for essentially a group of like two full-time epidemiologists and a few assistants who are uh, dispatched from uh, their national state health, public health sectors. And that's the entire sort of infectious disease tripwire. And it's up to them to sort of, you know, go through using Giffen, which, which is a, a sort of technology in part uh, developed by some of the people at Google, which sort of constantly collates and sifts through all the news reports everywhere, all the various, you know, bits of traffic and, and data about, about, you know, disease outbreaks, whether it's dengue in, in, uh, in, in Bangladesh or, or influenza in China or, or Marburg in Africa. They're constantly sort of sifting through all these data points out there and looking looking for clusters of them that indicate a likely emergence of an infectious disease. Still, this is a tiny group of people, right? And it just so happened that SARS occurred in southern China in a spot where the world is constantly looking for signs of influenza, right? I mean, it's, it's widely, it, you know, it's, influenza pandemics have emerged from China before southern China because of the proximity of inhabitation between, between humans and poultry and humans and wild animals has always been sort of an, an emerging disease, an emerging influenza hotspot. Mm -hmm. So SARS happened coincidentally to have broken out in southern China, where Gorin, where the Global Outbreak Response Network does tend to pay extra attention and does tend to monitor it closely. So they were very early picking up rumors and traffic about this on, uh, you know, from a couple different, uh, I believe a Canadian website, sort of medical news site had picked up a little bit of data about this. There were a couple of tourists in China who came back and said that they heard about this. And so, you know, that the news kind of was sort of filtering out very slowly. But because it was southern China and because Hong Kong is right next to southern China and the the, the, the virologists and scientists at places like Hong Kong University and Chinese University of Hong Kong are sort of very kind of reliable and steadfast influenza sentinels, they were on this immediately. Almost as soon as it was going on in southern China, they were trying to figure out what was going on. It was a, a bit of luck for the world that this did happen where it happened. I mean, if mm -hmm. SARS had happened in, in, in India, in, uh, in Central Africa, it would have been a slate wiper. I mean, you would have had, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands probably perish from this disease. We're talking about, you know, it's a respiratory virus. It's the most frightening, you know, it's the most frightening. You know, HIV at least requires uh, bodily fluid right. transmission. I mean, this is a respiratory virus. You know, where that had happened there, we're kind of lucky about. Now, as for the, the, the w, whether the WHO was successful in eventually securing Chinese government cooperation, there were different factions within the Chinese government. There was The Chinese scientific establishment was, and, and certainly the Chinese clinical establishment, the, you know, the actual frontline doctors were eager to cooperate from the beginning. These the Chinese doctors, as you know, it, those who've gone through the best medical schools, they're some of the best doctors in the world. There was also, though, within China, within the Ministry of Health, a contingent that was very reluctant to cooperate with um, the WHO and didn't want to let the World Health Organization send epidemiologists and doctors and send sort of a, you know, a team down to Guangdong to sort of figure out what was going on. And at the same time, the, the Ministry of Health and the, the Beijing government were insisting that essentially there were no SARS cases in Beijing, that the disease had not spread into the cities and therefore it was not cause for alarm in the general population. This turned out to be a dangerous lie. And it was really the, you know, one brave Chinese doctor, Dr. Zhang Yangyong, a uh, very high-level Communist Party member and also a doctor who had, who had treated some of the highest officials in China. He actually came forward. And in a letter to Time Magazine, the magazine I was running at the time, he, you know, he, he told us through two of our correspondents, Susan Jakes and Huang Yong, he basically said, look, this is who I am. 
there are a lot more cases uh, than the than the government's admitting in Beijing. In 301 Hospital, there's 60 cases. In Yuan Hospital, there's you know X number of cases. So he came forward and basically became a whistleblower. This just doesn't happen in China, as you know. I mean, you know, it's very rare that you have a Chinese official come break ranks with the government and attach his name to his to his document and to right. his statements. And right. and Dr. Zhang Yangyang was doing this. We went and spoke to him and you know wanted to make sure that one he was who he said he was, two that he understood the implications of what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he said, I'm, look, I've, been, I've lived in this country a long, long time. I know full well what I'm doing. This is a matter of global public health. He came forward. We published what he said. We, we double-checked it. with. We went back to the hospitals and, and, and got it corroborated. That's a story in and of itself. And published that. And that was sort of essentially what blew apart the Chinese government cover-up. Because you had, you know, a very high-ranking medical official saying the government's lying. Mm-hmm. The government's hiding cases, and this is dangerous. And from that point on, you had the mayor of Beijing was sacked. The Ministry of Health was was purged. Um, a very high-level government change happened. The Chinese government went from denial into per- perhaps one of the most effective responses to an infectious disease outbreak by a national government ever mounted. China still being a country where, because of such strong state controls over over you know the public health bureaucracy, they could do that. So they mounted right. an incredibly aggressive anti-SARS campaign that that you know effectively did slow the disease down. So all you know, all credit to them when they eventually came around to it. In the Chinese government's defense, I will say that if there were an outbreak of an unknown respiratory virus going on in, say, New Mexico, I find it very unlikely that the U.S. government would let a team of Chinese scientists in to collect samples and and do the analysis. You know, it, on the one hand, it's easy to vilify China and say, you know, that they weren't um, cooperating with the international community. On the other hand, it's you know, this is a national government and a very proud one, so they may have felt that this was a sovereignty issue. Um, certainly, the U.S. would take it as a sovereignty issue and wouldn't allow it. So you know. It's not like we can just blame China for misbehaving. Certain elements of the Chinese government certainly didn't act very uh, upstandingly regarding sharing information about, you know, a, a deadly disease. So from this experience, are you optimistic that China and the world will be able to cope for um, the bird flu virus and other uh, I think epidemics? I think, you know, there's, I think there's certainly been progress made. And, um, you know, Ian Lipkin from, from Columbia University has, has gone over and helped set up a Pasteur Institute in Beijing and Shanghai. I mean, Shanghai there, and there is awareness within China that, ironically, the national, put it this way, the national pride issue came into play, which is many Chinese scientists had felt that when SARS happened, none of the important academic research that was published or the breakthroughs that were made, i.e. isolating the virus, which was done by Malik Paris and his team at Hong Kong University, these Chinese scientists felt like because of the policy of secrecy and cover-up that went on around the early days of SARS, they were prevented from getting the credit internationally that they should have gotten because mm-hmm. they couldn't publish. Because how can you publish, you know, groundbreaking research about a disease that in theory doesn't exist, right? Yeah. So, so within, within the Chinese scientific community, there was a great deal of resentment about not being allowed to sort of, you know, that they were doing good work and they couldn't share it with the world. So you now have internal pressure from the um, Chinese Academy of Sciences to allow them to do the kind of research and publish the kind of research, which automatically implies more openness. However, that said, you know, when the virus hits the fan, so to speak, it's, I don't know that the crisis response of public health officials is going to be any different. And that's what worries me. Because again, we're talking about two different things. It's one thing for you and I to sit here and rationally talk about a disease outbreak. It's another thing if someone runs into the room and says, holy crap, you know, there's a plague out there. Our response may completely change. We may panic and run out of the room and do that. So, I mean, so, so, and, and so this, this is the risk we, that we take. And this is true of any country. It's just China, because of its authoritarian regime and because of the sort of somewhat confusing nature of the power structure there, and, and because of control of the media, that the media can't independently report on, on a disease outbreak, that, it, that it, it only takes one local sort of, you know, Communist Party Mandarin to crack down on the information flow. And, and you may not know about an emerging influenza outbreak until it's already crossed the border. I guess we are 
are running a little bit out of time here. Um, are there anything you'd like to add about yourself or uh, any upcoming books you have planned? No, my next book is very different. My next book is a book about my, my brother's autistic, so I'm doing a book that's half a, a memoir of, of autism and also sort of an exploration of the neuroscience of autism and what's going on sort of in the wiring of the autistic mind. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my next book. It's always very different. It's not a, it's not a disease book. My first two books also weren't disease books, so I've done, you know, I've I've done a different range of things. But this 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 book is is uh, it's a it's a sort of very intensely told kind of you know thriller um, recounting of the uh, of the disease outbreak in which you learn a lot about China. You also learn a lot about sort of how how disease outbreaks happen and what the response to them should be. So it, it's entertaining, but it's also very informative. Great, Mr. Greenfield. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And we were just talking to Mr. Carl Taro Greenfield on the SARS epidemic. His book, China Syndrome, the 21st Century's First Great Epidemic, is now available at bookstores and Amazon.com. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, the Grokotron 5000, so stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Grox. Well, Mr. Greenfield has kindly agreed to join us on this week's edition of the Grokotron 5000, the computer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today's question is extreme virulence or benign mutations, and here are five subjects. Subject number one, extreme virulence or benign mutation, Tom Cruise. Benign mutation. Subject number two, a celebrity of a different kind, Star Wars character Yoda. Extreme virulence. You don't think he's benign? No, no, I think he's dangerous. Thank God he found work in those Star Wars movies. Otherwise, (laughs) otherwise I think the world really would have But but he's still a mutant, right? He's certainly a mutant, but but extreme virulence can include mutations. You know, I thought mutations can result in extreme virulence. Uh, Subject number three, Fox News, benign mutation or extreme virulence? Extreme virulence. They're kind of harmful. As harmful as uh, as something that can be that's essentially already preaching to the converted. I don't think Fox News is changing anyone's mind. It's essentially telling people who already think a certain way that they should keep thinking that way. That's like CCTV, right? Pretty much, yeah. It's not that different. With but slightly, slightly. I mean, CCTV doesn't have Bill O'Reilly. Okay. <laughs> who's, who's who's an extremely virulent but extremely entertaining sort of virulence. All right. Uh, subject number four: the Catholic Church, extreme virulence or benign mutation. The church hierarchy itself, or the whole church? Okay, let's just stick with the hierarchy. Church hierarchy. Uh, the papal authority. Based on an early reading, and mind you, that I know nothing about the intricacies of the Vatican, I still find him extremely virulent. All right, and uh, subject number five, our um, perennial favorite, President of the United States, George W. Bush, extreme virulence or benign mutant? Extreme virulence. <laughs> These are easy. I mean, you're, 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 I mean, you're, you're, you're throwing me. Uh, uh, 
uh, guys who are pretty much clearly over on like the, the dangerous malignant tumor side of, of mutation. Okay, here's one more. <laughs> Super pop star Michael Jackson. Clearly a mutant, but he's kind of lost his power, hasn't he? Yeah. I think he, he went from being extremely virulent to I think he's now just sort of collapsing into benign mutation. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think he's dangerous anymore. I mean, I, I, then again, I'm not a seven-year-old boy. Well, Mr. Greenfield, thank you so much for joining us on this week's Grokotron 5000. Thank you. Oh, yeah, brother. It's the Hulkster. I've wrestled a number of great... I've never wrestled a number of great competitors in my time. Sharks be one of them. And they beat me, but they can't beat cancer. Their shark fins have no power over cancer. What you gonna do, brother? Okay, and now Bruce Lee here. You know, Hookster, I show you the way out of the feast. But you know, you know what is the way out of the feast? <laughs> it's the one with so much turkey and other crazy yummy in the American culture. But you know, I wonder what is the glycemic index? It's the one that makes my feast most <laughs> powerful. If you know what's the glycemic index, email us at uh, groks at hotmail.com. <laughs> you won't win anything, but Yang can cook, so can you. <laughs> and that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.